0: Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. episode six of hashing it out as always i'm here with colin say what's up what's up guys hi and today we are here with Stuart from cadena can you can you give us a quick brief introduction as to how you got into this space what the project is and um what you're trying to do sure
1: yeah so um i'm Stuart popejoy uh i founded cadena uh, in 2016 with will martino um Going into that, we were working at a big bank. We were working at JP Morgan. Um, I had previously done a lot of, built a lot of trading and exchange systems for JP Morgan and others. Will had worked at the SEC and done some quantitative analytics. And while we were there, we were leading up a blockchain group that was helping JP Morgan both make strategic investments and uh, do R and D to solve problems at the bank with blockchain, largely private blockchain. So Cadena launched. Based on some technology, we developed an open source there with a high performance private blockchain, as well as a, we uh, quickly developed a smart contract language called Pact, which was really kind of in response to a deep understanding of Ethereum and the EVM and Solidity and trying to make something that we thought would make it easier and safer to write smart contracts. And then about a year ago, we decided we wanted to make an investment into public blockchain technology by uh, developing ChainWeb to both kind of work in a proof of work system and also to uh, provide a a scalability solution that did use proof of work. So ChainWeb being a parallel chain uh, proof of work architecture that allows for up to 10,000 transactions per second. And uh, we announced that at Stanford and that kind of brings us today. We've started building ChainWeb and uh, we've had the private blockchain in production for over a year. We've got some big clients and uh, yeah, it's been fun.
0: So I I have this viewpoint of the current landscape of things that I've I've built out this analogy that's that might be not working anymore. But uh, I want to explain that for a second, and um, I I think it it sets the stage for the rest of the conversation for this for this talk. And that is looking at the history of not the internet this time but the history of computation itself and how that has evolved and what problems we faced along the way. Um, So as the CPU got better and better and better, we decreased the size of transistors. The CPU was able to do more and more and more work, but we got to a point where that no longer scaled. And so we had to move towards this concept of, instead of computing on a single core that just got faster and faster, we did computing on multiple cores. And we spread the workload to multiple cpus at the same time so we had to find a way of distributing work this gave rise to two concepts of parallel computing one is the embarrassingly parallel model which is basically referred to as map these days and the other one is a fully parallelized model where the individual workers have to know at least some context of the other workers whereas embarrassingly pal- parallel computation um The workers are completely isolated and don't have to care about what other the other workers are doing. And the way that you design tasks, uh, based on the communication between these processes is very, very different. And the way I see blockchain is, we just got to the point of trying to start to not do the same work on a single CPU, and trying to figure out how to then spread that work across multiple CPUs, aka blockchains in this context. And what I'm seeing is a lot of people trying to force full parallelization techniques into an embarrassingly parallel model, which inherently can't work. Can you, for, for one, do you think that's a good f- f- reference to start to think about the problems we're currently facing? And if so, like, what can we do about it?
1: Yeah, so the, the terms I'd use uh, for embarrassingly parallel and parallel, I'd use concurrency um, to describe... Um, problems that require, you know, kind of knowledge of the other process that's running and then parallelism is kind of in a way the easier problem to solve. Um, And uh, a lot of the, you know, if you have a background in scaling distributed systems, uh, my background is in trading exchange systems. Um, The, uh, you know, one of the things that, like, you try to do from an engineering point of view is you try to take kind of the dumbest possible model you can um, and, you know, make as few assumptions as you can. And that, one of those, th- and some of those assumptions are, it, it's surprising when you see where assumptions kind of pop up, and one of them is in this idea of trying to take a concurrent problem and make it parallel um, huh. that we see in blockchain. And that, that's when you start talking about like DAGs and things like hash graph and things like that. Um, and the reason why is that they're trying to partition the, what, what you might call partitioning the key space, um certainly if you're talking about like web sharding, that's the way you mm-hmm. express it. And, you know, while that might work really well for a, you know, shopping cart or something like that, um, you know, a lesson I learned in trading systems is that, you know, you can come up with these incredibly smart ways to partition your load, but then uh Apple releases their earnings report and then all of a sudden everybody's trading Apple. So now, you know, all of your fancy mechanisms to be able to use all your cores or use all your machines. Um basically come to naught if you've assumed that, you know, nothing impacts anything else because now all of a sudden everything's impacting the same thing. Um so uh you know so and you're kind of back to the same old load balancing techniques of the past.
2: Right.
1: And uh y- you know so and then the other side of it is you know kind of looking at the history of consensus itself and you know and I think people have a tendency I think there's a weird tendency to kind of underestimate the magnitude of, uh, you know, of Satoshi's achievement with Bitcoin, um, in the sense that the idea that you could have a partition tolerant, um, open system that's basically constantly under attack that's not prevented by that's not protected by firewalls um, be able to achieve anything
0: mm-hmm.
1: is you know is a first in the history of computing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this, all of the work that goes into like Byzantine fault tolerance and uh, consensus, you know, has huge assumptions made about, uh, uh, you know, a closed environment, um, all sorts of things like this, and, um, you know, so of course Bitcoin is, as you mentioned, Bitcoin's like a single CPU. Ethereum follows that with, you know, kind of a more fully fledged CPU metaphor. What Chainweb basically tries to do is offer the most, the lowest level parallelization primitive possible in the sense that um, one you know the chain web uh, you know chainweb is based on this notion that if you can build a hash from a single chain where a hash incorporates the previous the hash of the previous block chain web uh, takes that to where a hash could incorporate blocks from other chains that are kind of running alongside it um, and that serves two purposes. The first purpose is to keep all of these, uh, is to have a notion of multiple chains and be able to keep them all on one kind of mega fork or mega branch, if you will. Um, and that's possible because you can, you can basically find yourself in the history. If, if you sample someone else's uh, Merkle root, but they sampled you or, or through some route sampled you in the past, you can find yourself in their hash, and that way, you, uh, everybody can ensure that they're staying on the same uh, fork. Where, uh, and then, um, and then what that ends up providing, however, is a uh, a SPV um, uh, oracle, uh, because the so SPV simple payment verification, you know, the technology that allows things like Electrum and other light, you know, other uh, desktop wallets to kind of not have to run a full Bitcoin node. Um, the problem they have to solve and it gets discussed in this in the Satoshi paper is that you have you have to basically uh, make a kind of probabilistic guess about what the longest chain is at any time and you know and the way you might do that is look at like six big miners uh, you know and get there and you know and watch what they're doing and, and load their header stream and then say oh look there's a bunch of kind of compute your own consensus um, chain web ends up offering its own in the sense that you just look at your own header and anybody who wants to send anybody who wants to prove a transaction that happened on another chain basically provides you with a proof that allows you to stitch together uh the hops from you from the chain they were on to your chain and well really you're going the other way you're going from your chain to their chain and then doing the kind of normal merkle proof to find uh where their transaction is um, as a result, you have uh, the ability to do a, a burn create where you burn a coin on one chain and then create the corresponding coin on another chain. And that's, that's the kind of primitive that allows us to, to have a single currency over tens, hundreds, or thousands of chains. Um, it's also the same mechanism that allows us to run these chains more or less independently alongside each other and get a linear increase in throughput up to 10,000. Uh, if you say if you have a thousand chains um, and they're doing ten transactions per second, which is a very pessimistic, uh, you know, we feel like we can do a lot better than that. But just to kind of be honest, and say we're doing ten transactions per second on a chain, we can get ten thousand transactions per second by linking a thousand chains together. Um, but but the but the interesting thing about it is that it's it's a very low level coordination primitive, and it's also available to smart contracts. Um, but it's not like a magic bullet for you know for kind of like working out. Uh, computation schemes for how you're going to uh, you know like it does allow for instance it allows you to uh, load balance a smart contract so you could deploy a smart contract to say ten or fifteen five ten chains whatever um, whatever you think your load is going to be and of course it would allow you to even respond to a uh, kind of uh, congestion event by being able to actually hot deploy to new chains But. Uh, insofar as your smart contracts need to be aware of the ones running on the other chains, it's not a magic bullet for that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just possible because you can, similar to using the receipts of the coin transactions to be able to do a burn create, you could do a similar kind of token sharing strategy to to share state across uh, smart contracts. But the only other point I want to make about that is that that's only if you want to stick to the completely trustless low-level mechanism which you know, if you're super paranoid, that's going to be one that would allow you to not ever, you know, to have a basically fully trustless and proven workflow, but that might be kind of slow every time you have to move state across chains. Uh, but clearly, what you can do is you can you. There's tons of opportunities for trusted services, um, you know, more typical Oracle services to leg in there and provide, you know, and, and basically make it possible to do instantaneous transactions where. Somebody's basically asserting for you uh, what the state of your smart contract is on another chain and making that available to you, uh, you, know, in a, in a, you know, in a fast or even, you know, completely straight through processing kind of way. So there's a bunch of stuff you can build on top of it to allow for, you know, very instantaneous uh, interaction between smart contracts if you're willing to give up a little bit of trustlessness. Uh-huh. Um, and then finally, of course, as a level one scaling solution, that means you know by level one I mean that the base layer itself is where the scaling is is achieved. That doesn't rule out the use of a lightning network or a similar uh, level two scaling solution as well. I mean, lo- you know what I just described in a way might be orchestrated, in fact, by a uh, atomic hash lock or some of the things we see being used in lightning network. Um, you know, depending on what kind of trust model you want to use. Um, uh, so, you know, so the idea, so again, the idea is that the infrastructure shouldn't try to answer every single question. The infrastructure should basically make it possible to parallelize and then, but not make kind of grandiose promises about, um, you know, because... That, you, which is my big problem with like the kind of dag based approach is mm-hmm. that it 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 really presupposes that the problem that you're trying to solve is going to decompose to something that can be solved with this kind of partition key space and there's any number of problems that don't decompose that way
2: right it's 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 interesting to me though that you've a lot of these these solutions that I see they really want to retain state across say shards um, and they want to they want to be able to like reference the other the other uh, the states across like the multiple parts of the chain, the throughput, the channel, whatever you want to call it, that it's actually throwing the transactions of value through. sounds like you're just completely not even, you don't even care about that. You sounds like you, you've, you've kind of abandoned that approach. And I was wondering, is it even possible to do that in your current system? Because it sounds to me like you could have chains for state and chains for value and chains for just high throughput transactions, and they could all kind of play together to build a larger decentralized application.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, there's you really can do it every want. I mean, there's a few things that we need to keep uniform across the chains. I was having a discussion with somebody who uh, brought up the possibility of having different chains have different hashing algorithms as a way to avoid uh, decentralization. Uh, you know, as a basics. yeah way to avoid centralization. Sorry, um, by, but the but but one thing we need to be able to reason about over the whole chain is the difficulty parameters, because um, basically within some window of, uh, you know, of blocks being a little off from each other, uh, ChainWeb runs as kind of a single block height at any time. So that's obviously, that implies that we need to keep the hash rate uh, and the that's hashing. We need, we need to be able to ha- reason about the hashing difficulty across chains. So mm-hmm. um, some things do need to be uniform, but not really that many. Um, you know, like, so one interesting thing, a lot of ChainWeb, you know, ChainWeb's, uh, the design, its history has a has a fairly distinguished pedigree, um, in the sense that uh, Adam Back and others proposed, uh, you know, Adam Back proposed Bitcoin, on the mailing list. I want to say like 2014 or two, th- I think it was in 2014 for both of these, and someone else proposed a uh, thing called Blockrope, um, and these were these were strictly two chain proposals, but using basically the same mechanism and uh, largely as an approach to security but also as a way to like betacoin was about being able to stage basically have a hot beta of the next kind of like bitcoin release so that they could find bugs and a kind of so they'd want to be able to burn coins and create them on the other chain so really uh really was the the same design but not really looked at as a scalability solution but looked at as either a staging flexibility solution or in the case of block rope there it was after mount gox so they they wanted two chains because two chains are harder to attack than one mm. um, in the sense that if you you know the normal 51% attack uh, or you know or whatever you want to call it where you end up you know where you try to uh, kind of rewrite a bunch of blocks um, rewrite the history of say however many blocks you need to you know to f- uh, cause some kind of fraudulent transaction to occur on uh, chain web you now have to do that for every chain that gets referenced um, mm. by the chain you're trying to attack so um, the increase in security is just kind of intuitive and dramatic, and that was the uh, block proposal. So that's the kind of pedigree of, and in fact, they talk about it in the original sidechains paper of how they uh, how you know one of the problems, one of the things they were trying to avoid was that there was a there was a belief that this would make the network harder to do you know kind of community hard forks on. Um, but that's not how we came to it. The way we came to it was um, based on features in our smart contract language because, Uh, we wanted to base, we liked PACT and we wanted to put PACT on public chain. And at that time, everybody was talking about governance and, you know, PACT has always had governance at the smart contract level in the sense that any smart contract that you deploy in the PACT system necessarily has to have a public key based, uh, governance regime that allows you to upgrade the contract or, you know, uh, fix an exploit or fix a data or anything like that. Um. And, you know, and with all the bugs that come out in Ethereum where they basically have to do a hard fork to fix them, um, you know, this was something that we felt was going to be a huge improvement all by itself. Uh-huh. Uh, but PACT has a, primitive, has, a, has a primitive mechanism for orchestrating, uh, for orchestrating multi-step transactions. And the, the concept that led to ChainWeb was, well, what if we could do SPV inside of a smart contract? Um, and that's, so that's kind of how we ended up with it was to be able to, was a state sharing thing in the sense that, okay, we have this nice kind of trustless way to put together a multi-step transaction thanks to Pact. If we gave Pact the ability to, you know, made it easy for developers to do an SPV proof inside of Pact, what would result? And, you know, and the first thing to pop out was a SPV based way to do an uh, exchange with Bitcoin or Litecoin or something like that. Um, Although Litecoin is a, is probably is a fast, you know, the atomic, the uh, atomic swap, the hash time lock contract is a, probably is a faster and kind of simpler way to do it. Mm-hmm. But once we realized that we had a header, once, once we, uh, once we thought about what it would mean to do that to the same chain is actually, and the fact that you'd need to incorporate the headers, that's actually where we came out of it. We didn't like this, this emerged as a solution for. Being able to run, to use SPV to coordinate two chains to share state, and then it kind of uh, ballooned out from there. So,
2: yeah, because so you always- guys, you guys have the ability to add many, many chains to this. Like, it it has one Genesis, but um, uh, looking uh, looking through your pace talk, it was it, it. looks like you said ten thousand transactions a second, so you could have a thousand chains. Is that a, right. by the way? Is that a hard cap? And I, how are I'd you like adding to, these
0: chains? I'd like to Go wait, before, take a step back, and and ask a question that discusses the number of chains and how they're in interconnected. Cause I think there's, yep. there's automatically a, a number of naysayers that say you can't do that. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that has to do with the fact that as you like, say you have a bunch of chains that are running parallel to each other and you then have to then help them communicate with each other by passing messages across them, which is you do through references to block editor or the, the, the different block headers. I, uh, now if you do that naively, you end up with a exponential scaling problem because all chains can't connect to all other chains. And from what I've gleaned from the talks that I've read about you is that you're using graph theory as a method to optimize the communication amongst change, which, which gives you somewhat of a trade off between um, the time it takes to move an asset from one chain to another, but it also minimizes the amount of computation, which I'm not sure helps you get rid of exponential scaling, but at least Makes it tractable. Can you talk about that a bit before we move on to how Pact does this?
1: Well, I, I guess the only, the thing I would note there is that um, before before I answer the question is is just as, is the exponential. You know, you, the use of the term exponential there because um, that's a degraded case, right? I mean, there's no question that you could come up with a super degraded case by which every single transaction in the system has to reference a transaction on the other chain. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, but that's, it's, it's pretty absurd to worry about that because there's so many solutions to that problem. We have our primitive solution, of course, which is that, you know, which is you do do this kind of like stitching together the chains and depending on what your need for, uh, you know, confirmation before you do that, you might have to wait a few blocks for those. So, you know, we're talking about something that, you know, the interchain communication can be quite slow. Um, and one thing I want to add there is that, you know, there's a, so many things to talk about with web, and one of the things to talk about is the fact that since two chains are stronger than one, a thousand chains are absurdly stronger than one, and especially with the way the propagation works so that we, in, you know, once we can uh, build, a, build a, uh, a kind of robust simulation that can give us hard numbers about, you know, the probability of an attack, we're going to be able to take the difficulty down considerably. So when we talk about, and then lastly, the graph theory part is basically the idea is that is the notion of a diameter. Um, and a diameter in a graph is a is a kind of longest shortest path, um, mm-hmm. or sorry, shortest longest path. Um, so that means that we have a we have a network configuration that allows us to get. So with a thousand chains, we can conceive of a network configuration that has where every node is is directly connected to ten. Uh, every chain is directly connected to ten other chains. Uh, but you can get to uh, any other chain in the network in three hops. That's the diameter. It's the, it's the um,
0: same concept know, of six degrees, from sep- from Kev- six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon, who, for anybody who right. didn't quite understand that.
1: Right. And in here, the de- I mean, uh, degree gets flipped, of course, in that colloquialism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> like in degree diameter, degree is the number of pe- people you immediately know. It's the number of um, edges you have to uh, you know, an immediate neighbor. And then diameter, so it's really like uh, you know, like, uh, it's edges, like it's yeah. uh, six edges of separation is what is what it really is. Um, so yeah, and, and ours, you know, and the, this is a problem with known configurations. I mean, it's a hard problem to solve uh, a priori, but there's all these configurations that have been solved, um, and you know, so there's a bunch that have like four versus three hops uh, to get to the entire network. Um, so, so, but again, the, 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 you know, the, the, the things that I discussed before is that, you know, there's nothing about ChainWeb that doesn't preclude using level two solutions to improve performance. You know, you can do whatever you want in terms of using sidechains. Um, you know, you can still see ChainWeb as kind of this massive mainnet, but the big difference is that it's a mainnet that's got, that is parallelized. So, it's actually far more flexible I mean, I think the kind of implications of Chainweb for designing level two solutions are, are you know, co- are basically completely unexplored. I mean, like someone like Zaki would be that you know would be the person who would probably start looking into that first, in the sense that um, you know, uh, the if you look at Chainweb as a mainnet, the size and the power of a network that would take level two solutions off that is, is kind of absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, so that's the, the, those those the, I, one thing I, I don't like about a lot of the discussions in uh, blockchain or, you know, whatever, is it. one thing that I, I've, that I question in a lot of the discussions in blockchain is this kind of like tendency to talk about scaling solutions as though the implications of a scaling solution are understood.
0: Yeah. If you built
1: <laughs> large systems that scale, which I have, I can tell you, you need to roll that thing out into production before you're going to understand it. And that's just all there is to it so Mm. you know i for me what i like about Chainweb is i know what the issues are going to be you know because what are we not changing we're not changing proof of work we know that each of the chains is going to be partition tolerant is going to have all the features that we like about bitcoin about ethereum uh and we're not going to lose any of that all we're doing is we're basically taking properties of the system that easily accept you know basically the the uh in, in uh Blockchain itself, you know, Stuart Haber's design, which is to uh, incorporate hashes in a Merkle structure, we're leveraging the fact that that can easily incorporate another Merkle structure to give us a you know a low-level form of parallelization uh, that you can then you know build you know a huge amount of things on the same way that we're doing with like Lightning or anything else.
0: Can can we? I I, I feel like the next. Almost automatic argument that someone would come up with against what you're doing or or at least question in terms of explaining it is how does mining in this scenario work? Is it something that anyone can jump in on and off on like Bitcoin? Well, maybe not Bitcoin, but the idea of that type of um, permissionless uh, incorporation of becoming a miner or is this something that's going to be basically relegated to a few small powerhouses of people who can mine?
2: It almost feels like mining pools are really going to be essential for this kind of thing to take off. That's not
1: really the way we look at it. I can see why people would jump to that. And then, uh, like, that was, like, one of the first questions at the B-Pace talk. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, now you've got this, like, you know, so the idea being is that if you wanted to have a view, say say we uh, – and I wanted to actually get back to your – there was a question before. We'll talk about the size of the network and stuff like that. But let's, let's just stick with this thousand number because that's a, you know, that's a kind of – uh, intimidatingly large number. And, you know, there's, and, you know, so the idea being that you're actually going to try to successfully mine a thousand chains. We're not talking about, you know, having, you know, 50 GPUs in your garage or, or, you know, like to give a kind of upper bound of like individual efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, we're talking about, you know, whatever, a data center somewhere or something like that. Um, uh, that's, so therefore, peop, you know, there, there's this tendency to say like, oh, well, chain web is all about centralization because now you need to be this powerhouse to be able to have a view of the entire network. And um, the, the, the points to make there is first that chain web is 100% per- permissionless, just like Bitcoin, in the sense that um, you can mine any individual one of these chains. There's no, there's no reason, nothing is, they, they operate the exact same way. So there's no reason why. Uh, you can't jump in on one, two, four, you know, whatever. And in fact, if you're somebody who's running a smart contract and you load balance to like, you know, say 10 or 12 chains, it's probably in your interest to run full nodes or even mine on those chains. So, um, but, the, but the interesting thing about ChainWeb is just that um, ChainWeb introduces an interesting variable into the kind of mining optimization. So when miners are, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how to most profitably mine, that the only way we can really talk about it is to look at like miners who are mining both bitcoin cash and bitcoin um you know and kind of the situation we've seen where like uh the bitcoin cash difficult you know nobody's mining bitcoin cash so then the difficulty falls so then Uh all the bitcoin you know well not all the bitcoin miners but all the bitcoin cash miners uh all the you know all the kind of uh people who do both switch over to bitcoin cash and you know make a bunch of money and you know mine like crazy uh, with the low difficulty, and then the difficulty pops back up, and then they all jump back on to Bitcoin. You know, which you know, obviously, there's been mitigations for this, and, um, but that's that's an interesting lesson that can be applied to Chainweb, which is that. Um, so you know, big bad miner who's like mining all the chains is still going to be interested in at any point in time in mining the chain that is furthest behind. Um, you know, in the sense, as I said before, there's this notion of a single block height. Um, you're basically going to want to be observing all the chains and finding the ones that are, you know, that have had the least work done on them, or at least something where you have an impression of, that the least work has been done in it, because your mining dollar will just be better spent there, as opposed to you just won this chain, so you're just going to stay on that chain and try and get the next block.
2: Right. Um, Which leads so- me to a uh, really question about that because that, that's that 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 point in particular is kind of uh, striking to me because. Um, you're monitoring all the chains, um, how can you guarantee that they're all going to have sort of a similar hash difficulty or hash power given to them so that they're going to have the same uh, sort of block times? Like how, how, Like how? It seems like it's, it's important that the difficulty remains the same across all of them, and in turn, the block times also sort of are intended to remain rather consistent. So you could say 10-second block times on all chains. That's, that's um, what it sounded like.
1: but I would it, say it's, it's that the model needs to be consistent, not necessarily the difficulty moment to moment. In other words, you need to have the same computation, uh-huh. but you don't have to have uh, the, the idea being at some point. So the other thing is that all, the, the reason why I said there's a window is that at some point everybody has to be caught up for the network to make proce- uh, progress. The network yeah. cannot leave a chain behind. It yes. is, you know, so again, this is another reason why so i was talking about it from a mining optimization point of view but there's another point of view which is that you're also going to do that just because you want to make money on this network so as a miner so you're going to go where the work is needed so that you can help there it's an interesting kind of like uh the incentive the mining reward incentivizes uh kind of a smooth function for spreading your mining work across the chain and as that moves forward the difficulty necessarily needs to stay within range, but it doesn't have to be lockstep. You don't, mm-hmm. you know, you can have, you know, obviously like a chain that's moving ahead, depending on, you know, depending on the tolerance that the the network has for other chains getting behind. Um, the chain that's moving ahead, uh, in theory, you know, depending on how often the how often the mining uh, kind of the mining difficult the hashing difficulty readjusts. Um, you know, you could see slight differences, but um, eventually the the network's going to stop making progress if some if 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 some chains are left behind. So, uh, yeah. So that's not. And you know, and, how, and some, how does that
2: mechanism work then? Um, how do you guarantee that the whole network won't make progress if some chains are left behind?
1: Uh, I mean, it's no different than Bitcoin if you think about it. I mean, the, what's interesting, the the weirdest thing about Bitcoin is the way that. Um, You know, if you think about it, Bitcoin could stop making progress tomorrow because all Mm -hmm. the miners could just be like, forget it. You know, like there's nothing forcing. It's all incentivization based. Mm -hmm. So likewise with Chainweb, the incentive, the incentive now is to not only keep working on, you know, to keep doing proof of work, but the incentive is also to efficiently spread your proof of work over all the chains. Because if you don't, eventually you're not going to be able to make money anymore. Gotcha.
2: Yep. And yep. how does that not open an attack vector? So let's say that there's uh, a lot of miners who are have a whole – and they, you see this now. There's a whole lot. Certain miners just have a, a, carry a significant amount of weight. And they can all get together and go, okay, we see this application. Let's just say Facebook is on these chains. And we know that if we stop mining on those chains, then Facebook's pro, you know, productivity will go down significantly. Um, does that not – Seem like a concern, or am I misunderstanding well, how that would
1: work? Well, I mean, well, they're sta- they're shooting themselves in the foot, right? Because uh, because the, is, that chain will the, the, that chain will quickly uh, slow down and even halt the entire network if they mm-hmm. go up a single chain. So it's actually like a fairness thing. It's not oh. in, in the sense that you can't attack a single chain because if you do, you're attacking the entire network. And by attack, of course, here we mean a liveness attack. In the sense, my my that you other. Can't, you can't, can't radically ignore certain chains because if you do eventually the other chains are not going to be able to make progress and that that limit is generally the diameter by the way in the sense that um, you know a, you need to be you need to incorporate your peers you know in the sense of that when we talk about the diameter diameter degree diameter that first degree you need to incorporate that their last block so that you can make your next block but they need to incorporate their peers and so Depending on the diameter, you basically have diameter blocks uh, of maybe oh. before, you, have, before you, you cannot make progress if you can't make, it, make a new block. So it actually you know, it forces a high degree of coordination on the chain. And the last point I want to make, because I know someone, I know, uh, is just to say that the coordination is one of the most interesting things about ChainWeb because it, it actually creates a role for large miners and small miners to work together. Now, you know, if you have a mining pool that is focused on say five chains, that's something that like a big miner doesn't have, you know, the big miner can take into account the work you're doing on that in terms of them trying to optimize how they're going to mine the entire network. And so that's something that I think is very new is that because, you know, as much as, you know, there's 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 obviously reasons to want to oppose, you know, big miners, but it's, you know, everybody knows that, I mean, not everybody knows, but I think there, it's a commonly held belief and it's certainly one I hold that uh, it's a war of attrition and that at some point it's going to get, you know, that that Bitcoin is not central, you know, that hashing is not very centralization resistant up to some point. Mm-hmm. Um, depending, you know, there's GPUs versus ASICs. There's all these kinds of things you can discuss. But um, chain web is interesting, at least in that. As those kinds of differences emerge, there becomes a productive way for large and small miners to be able to coordinate.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. if I can, I re-explain that so that I make sure that I have it. Um, you're saying because everything is connected, and so you have, uh, let's just say, a, uh, a a network with ten, you know, ten thousand nodes. Everything must be at least degree three. Uh, I think you said that maybe. Um, yeah. Let's
1: add, well, I was saying ten and three. I, I don't know if I have the exact numbers so, right
2: um but either way let's let's just say 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 you have to include your degree 10 diameter
1: three a thousand chains
2: okay so degree 10 so you need to include 10 other headers from the chains that are your neighbors your nearest neighbors um in order to produce the block on your current chain so if somebody all the way on the other end of the, the 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 um the network okay they're they're not they're not connected to you within three they're say nine hops away okay
1: well, the diameter easy. if we did 10 oh, the, the diameter. diameter would be 3
0: the so diameter at a maximum oh, yeah, would the diameter be 3, all three. Like so, three. so let's
2: just say it doesn't okay so like yeah that makes sense um so they would be all the way on the other other end of the, the um the uh, the graph um you would you would have to uh if they're, and they're attacking so that's really slow
0: because yeah, they're attacking be more
2: than that you can, can
1: switch Remember, you can switch over and mine those chains yourself.
2: Right. But I was saying, like let's just say somebody's attempting an attack over there, you would notice that and go, Okay, well now I can't produce what I need to do in order to continue my work. So I'm going to go hop over there. Furthermore, it would just disincentivize them because the entire value of what they're mining, whoever's just like withholding over there, wouldn't wouldn't gain any benefit from it because it's also withholding over the whole network in like, let's just say four blocks. Right. Um yeah.
0: Got it. So- all right, so that there's, a, there's another aspect of this that I think is... I want to look at an attack from the opposite perspective instead of block withholding because it seems as though you've, you've leveled the incentives properly so that withholding a block doesn't make sense. People can just hop on that chain and mine that block if they're incentivized to have the information from that particular chain. The opposite of that is if you have an outside actor that has a lot of mining power overproducing blocks in a single chain, would that not also cause issues with the coordination of other things? Because if it's maybe you know fifty no, blocks well, ahead, you can't include any can't of those be. things. It can't okay. be
2: because guess. he can't he can't yeah. he can't produce new blocks until the other uh, his ah, nearest neighbors
0: do. okay, Perfect. right.
2: Yeah, it all balances out. It's like actually pretty solid. I can't. Yeah, that's that's neat.
1: Yeah, and you know what's the craziest? Right, the thing about what you know designing the system, the craziest thing about it is that most of these things emerge from the design. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. we didn't like you know. We weren't like, you know, sitting in our lab with this, like, cackling, you know, (laughs) massive plan. You know, it was like, we just came up with this primitive that said that, you know, we just started with SPV. We're like, you know, we want to have smart contracts be able, we want to have two chains talk to each other with smart contracts and SPV. Um, In fact, where this came from was, um, the way it came out of the smart contract language is that one of the things that's one of the biggest warts on the EVM is the fact that money paying itself is not in the smart contract language per se but as part of the messaging system that uh, contracts use to call each other. The only way you s- pay money in the EVM is by doing call or the re- related opcodes and you know, attaching an amount of, of ether to that. Um, and, you know, and, and now you know, there's, there was, there's an effort, I don't know where it's at right now, there's an effort to actually make an ERC-20 for Ethereum so that you know, we could use the same interface. But we wanted to solve that problem at the root by having uh, a smart contract be the mechanism by which coin was uh, managed in the system, um, so that ev- so that moves that entire. Even in Bitcoin, that's not true. In Bitcoin, while uh, you know the trustless part of it is the ownership of the outputs. Obviously, when you run a Bitcoin transaction, you're running the script to the- to guard those outputs and release them into the transaction. But that mechanism by which it's released into the kind of the middle of a transaction, where the new outputs get generated is obviously hard-coded as part of the protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, what we wanted to do is have an entirely smart contract-based uh, coin for any number of reasons. Originally, we thought we might want to have governance, but um, that's an extremely fraught question. If you put, if you, if you put a governance, you know, like the coin in Chainweb is going to be autonomous. You know, like in other words, you know, while we can have governance over a smart contract, you can make an Ethereum-style smart contract by just making it that it can't be upgraded. In other words, there are no public keys. That can upgrade it. Um, so the coin is going to be changeable, but the coin contract is only going to be changeable by hard fork, um, just to avoid, you know, the, the the problem of like becoming a money transmitter if you have control over a cryptocurrency, you know, issuing regime. Um, but so the governance isn't the big deal there, but it's it's more that Pact has, has a smaller surface area, all the things that make PACs safe to write smart contracts in. Uh, you know our upcoming formal verification, which I don't know if we get get a chance to talk about, but in the next uh, next week we're going to release a first cut of our formal verification solution for Pact, where we're able to compile Pact directly to uh, SMT lib two and and offer a uh, property uh, property checking language that melds in with the Pact code to allow you to write to route, allow normal non PhD de- you know application developers to be able to use a formal verification system to prove things oh that's awesome that benefits the coin contract because now we can load up the coin contract with all sorts of proofs and say that like look our coin contract has a has a very small surface area anyways but you know beyond that we've already gone and like loaded up with every proof we could think of um you know of course you can't ever say that nothing has you know we'll never ever have a bug but we'll do the very best job we can but at that point you know we we got into this thing of like okay well now now, you know, SPV should be something that's native to the smart contract language. And that's how we ended up. Um, and that's how, and weirdly, that's how we ended up with ChainWeb, is that we wanted to be able to do that.
0: I think well, the way we can maybe start moving into that conversation is the first explain the concept of smart contracting languages and how they interact with the base layer. And so for but most people's, I think, intuition around this is the programming of Solidity and then its compilation yeah. into bytecode for the Ethereum virtual machine or EVM. And what you're doing is not that. So I think explaining the concept of how a human would write a contract and how that then interacts to the base layer of, of chain web works, or like how, I, how packed is I shaped.
1: Might, I might go the other way if, if, if that's all right. Because, oh, perfect. Um, I mean, just, just, just the context. Start, and start with Bitcoin. Okay. Okay. Um, hmm. So, Bitcoin, you know, is a user programmable system, but with a very kind of unique model that, you know, I don't really know any other system that's quite like it. Um, and that was what I was talking about before, that you have, the ability to, the, you have the ability to write these tiny little scripts that will allow you to own, will allow you to release an output in a transaction to be reallocated to somebody else or back to yourself as change or whatever. Um, and Bitcoin had this bytecode, and the reason for the bytecode was that it was, you know, while certainly you can write some fairly complex uh, ownership, you know, schemes, the very model of computing kind of means that unless you're like, you know, doing colored coin hacks and trying to basically use time stamping to represent things that don't really resemble a UTXO, as long as we're talking about UTXOs, special. Bitcoin's bytecode is kind of right-sized for the problem at hand, and you can directly yeah. read Bitcoin bytecode. It's not that easy, but you can do it. You can look at, you know, you got to get used to it. But then you can look at these, you know, you can look at pay to pubkey hash or any of these things. You can look at the 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 you know the hash time lock contracts, you can read the bytecode and you can understand what's going on. And then of course, because it's turning incomplete, you know that it'll terminate. So if you look at it that way, it's not the bytecode is not like a low-level machine language. It is a DSL. It is a scripting DSL that runs on Bitcoin. It's in bytecode, probably just because they wanted it to be kind of small, mm-hmm. you know or that you know they, uh, there's certain things about stack machines. Oh, one thing about stack machines is that they have point free code in the sense that they don't have any variables, you know and that's actually a safety thing. I mean like mm-hmm. you know there's there's kinds of it, it limits the amount of computation that, that you can do, and that was wisely I think seen as a way to reduce the surface area of Bitcoin scripts, which have, you know, if you look at the history of Bitcoin scripts, of course, they've shut down a lot of opcodes to make it even safer. So as, as reduced as it was, uh, they got th- rid of things like string concatenation to make it even safer. Um, so when we move to something like Ethereum, I feel like that is a radical departure from Bitcoin. And it doesn't seem like it because it's like, oh, they just added a few, they added jump and they added call, you know, they basically, and they added store.
2: I mean, they, they took out the UTXO. They, there's a lot of differences between Ethereum and Bitcoin. Fair enough. Mm.
1: Well, but think about it. UTXO is not in Bitcoin script. Mm. Right? Bitcoin, UTXO is strictly external to, to Bitcoin script. Bitcoin it's like a, a firewall. Is, is, is strictly just, uh, you know, I've got this signature, I've got this public key, you know, and I'm basically issuing a Boolean. I'm saying pass or fail.
0: Yeah, it's, uh-huh. like, a, it's like a firewall to getting into the, UX, the UTXOs.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a custody system, basically. Um, so it, if you look at Bitcoin like the way I think you should properly look at it, which is basically a DSL for custody, then EVM has nothing to do with it. Because EVM, what superficially looks like it, because it's a bytecode, and oh, just add jump, add call. But now you have completely changed the entire purpose and the entire reason for existence of the uh of the bytecode itself and my argument is that that was just that was just a wrong move you know sorry but i just don't think that was the right way to go the pact rep- obviously i wrote pact so i think there's a different way to do it mm-hmm. and the way i wanted to go was let's go with this idea of scripting and with the dsls and things like that let's let's stick with you know and insofar as you can read bitcoin bytecode which i think you can it's not like fun I mean i think it's fun but you know it's it's like for a beginner it's it's certainly going to be a little bit intimidating let's see it's intimidating let's put it that way um the idea is like well we you know you could be i think actually even ivy you know chains language started off basically as a uh something that could be compiled to bitcoin bytecode which again i think kind of misses the point but um you know so pact is more the idea that like Okay, so let's let's take a step back. Let's consider what we're trying to do with smart contracts, and let's try to write the smallest possible language. Uh, but now, you know, it needs to be a script because it needs to be a real scripting language in the sense that you know it needs to be it needs to have code, not just bytecode. It needs to have things like variables, it needs to have things like abstraction, it needs to have functions. Um, but let's keep it Turing incomplete. Let's, you know, Pact is basically an attempt to say. What, what are the kinds of computations that we're going to be doing in this kind of smart contract area and you know, money transacting area? What do we need to get that done? And how can we eliminate everything else? And mm-hmm. in that sense, I see PACT as much more. In, and then all oh, the other thing about PACT is, of course, is that it's got primitives for doing public key authorization, which is also how it kind of derives directly from the Bitcoin heritage. Whereas EVM, on the other hand, uh, says, oh, state machines are great or, you know, stack, sorry, stack machines are great. Uh, let's let's make a stack-based uh, little CPU model and just chuck it on there and not really think about what it means to have this kind of general-purpose CPU running on a blockchain with a very low-level storage model and, you know, and all these kinds of things that don't really have, there's no real reason for that to be the compute model on the blockchain, and in fact, it has huge problems, as we all know. The, the biggest one being that you know, at, by making it very clear that this was a compiled target and not something that you're supposed to directly understand, um, it you know, it directly led to this, you know, this idea of going to write surface languages like Solidity that will deliberately and purposefully compile the code that no human could ever really read, like, and really can't, but, you know, would never want to. Um, and, you know, and not only that, introduced the problems of compilation. I mean, compilation is a very fraught field in terms mm-hmm. of, like, you know, there's a lot of things to think about between a low-level CPU model and a high-level language. If you look at what we've done in every other field in computing, in fact, even calling it a virtual machine is a bit of an abuse because if you look at the history of virtual machines, in other words, you look at the JVM, you look at Beam from Erlang, you look at anything else that called it, you look at the LLVM. They don't make kind of naive assumptions that like oh we just have this tiny little computer running here. They they make a lot of they try to actually make those things as high level as they can get away with. In the case of JVM, very high level. JVM has a lot of knowledge about like dispatch, about like the names of functions that are being called, about the names of variables. You can like Java bytecode is almost readable right. um, as Java, and that's deliberate because you know the point of the bytecode in in that in something like the JVM is not to be low level. It's to basically you know be able to erase a lot of the kind of like things that get in the way of optimization when you're just dealing with source. It's a lowering. It's what we call a lowering. You know, so it's something that is more amenable to optimization, you know, kind of hot optimization inside of the JVM and things like that. So the EVM is not a VM. It's really a machine. It's like, you know, it's it's a model of a CPU. and you know as as a result, it, it, it I mean, the nicest thing I can say about it is that it represents a bold kind of unhinged experiment of like what would happen if we put a machine on a blockchain and I think you know the answer is pretty clear which is that safety is going to be a huge problem that is going to mm-hmm. take years and you're basically turning back the clock because mm-hmm. you know we moved away that's why we started doing VMs Is to safety was one of the reasons like the JVM. You know, people love to hate the JVM, but you know the fact is, is that the JVM is a safer computing environment than you know coding on metal. That's just all there is to it. Um,
2: well, I, I, I just yeah. before you get too deep into that, I, I I really feel like the reason they made the EVM the way it is is different than say the JVM or even LLVM. They're, they're, the 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 purpose of of the EVM was to get a small bytecode that would run, or something that would take a small bytecode with a small limited instruction set, and actually put it publish it to the blockchain and let the blockchain be the distribution mechanism in a assuredly correct way. Like you know that the person sure. who posted this actually posted this. So it's yep. actually in the blockchain. Um, which actually is one of my questions about PACT because I haven't had a whole lot of time to get deep into it. Um, like where is this code? Um, how do I retrieve the PAC's code? Like how do I know this is where it exists? And how do I like verify that the code that I pull down is the same code as what was published or what is expected.
1: Oh, the great news is you just go right onto the blockchain and query it and you'll see the code so that's i mean it's much nicer than something like ethereum where you know sure you can go to a contract and look at a bunch of you can look at a bunch of gobbledygook Mm -hmm. of you know bytecode that you that there's no way you're going to be able to reason about what it does by looking at the bytecode you're going to have to basically go to their github look at the solidity that they compiled and say oh, I see, I'm supposed to do this RPC call to... Yeah.
2: Provide uh, an ABI or something like that,
1: yeah. Well, you, yeah, I mean, and if you're, you know, and of course you can use an ABI Explorer and then you'll get a little bit more information because of the Solidity ABI. But remember, you don't have to use the Solidity ABI. And, you know, in fact, yeah. the, this, that ABI is one of the many things holding back the platform because, you know, the, the other there's a whole other kind of social thing that happens by having compiling, which is that you basically get locked in a backward compatibility thing before you even started. And the ABI is one of the worst parts uh-huh. of that, um, whereas PACT is really straightforward. PACT, you just hop onto the blockchain, you know, on a, you know make a local call, you know, in, in terms of the compute model kind of north of the uh, uh, um, smart contract layer, um, the, Ethereum and Kadena are the same in the sense that, you know, it's deterministic, you know, you're not, you're not able to do things like, you know, call out the network, you still, you still need things like oracles, all of that stuff is the same. And so likewise you can do you can do something akin to exec which is basically you're going to push a transaction through the blockchain consensus and then execute it or you know you're going to do something like local which is basically you're going to look at your local node you're not going to be able to make any changes to the state and you're just you know so it's basically like a query right um so likewise but but i think
2: this is kind of like getting away from what i was actually asking and that's it's it's a small bytecode, and that's why they did it that way so that everybody could have a copy without increasing the size of the blockchain tremendously
1: well, but hold on. Okay. A small bytecode does not mean a small program.
2: Correct. Correct. But if you're posting the whole packed program, and it's like 2,000 lines of, of human-readable PACT, um, the logic exactly. of
1: that... Well, first thing is to remember is that code gzips beautifully.
2: Mm-hmm. There's no,
1: like, uh, I, I, would, I, that, that is, I would not want to make any naive pronouncements about the size of Solidity code compiled compared to Solidity source code. In terms mm-hmm. of it being appreciated. and also I don't, I just don't think that's a, I don't think that's really the reason. I don't think it's for compression. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Okay.
2: Um,
1: there are other ways to compress. You could compress solidity code with gzip, and then you'll end up with a very nice tiny little thing on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's why. Um, you know, it. I think that might be why. Again, I think that might be why Bitcoin used a bytecode. Because, you know, when you can... And I one of the first things I did uh, when I was at the the bank was write uh, an open source Ethereum interpreter in Haskell. It's one of only three that are out there. Um, It's called Masala. I mean, you know, now it's like a frontier era JVM, uh, EVM, but, you know, they haven't honestly changed all that much about it. But, um, uh, and, uh, you know, the thing is, is that it... Uh, one of the things that I was kind of into was coding directly in EVM. I was like, oh, this is pretty fun. You know, like, I mean, I've worked in other, there's Joy, which is this interesting kind of stack language. There's Forth, you know, there's, there's stack languages out there, um, you know, which the EVM is one of them. And I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But, um, but the problem is, is that nobody is doing that. Nobody is coding in straight EVM. Um, and because the, the whole push of Ethereum has been, You know, kind of use Solidity, use this object oriented model, which, you know, I could go on for hours about why I think object oriented Mm -hmm. is the wrong approach, but um, use this model and don't worry about the bytecode and don't worry about the ABI. Just, you know, write hello world, write, you know, it looks like JavaScript, it acts like JavaScript, write that kind of stuff. It'll compile to whatever, don't worry about that. And, you know, so the point being, uh, I think whatever the intentions might have been, what has resulted is that EVM is primarily a compile target, and the one thing it buys you is the ability to say, oh, we could go and write another surface language. Now, of course, you go and write another surface language, you're going to be in the position of needing to respect all the, if you want to interoperate with any other contracts on there, you're still going to have the ABI shim on it. Uh, so anyway, so, I, so the point is, is that when you're talking about something like a VM, small is not necessarily good and in, and in fact if you think about it big would be better like if you had a bunch of really high level uh op codes, you know that could do you know slice and dice and do like you know like had types and you know like where you could actually store a string god forbid and it's you know it's a string it's not like uh-huh. a bunch of word 256s um you know that that would actually shrink the size of the code much more because the point would be you're targeting people writing in bytecode. So you're going to give them these kind of feature-rich bytecodes. And in fact, that's kind of the idea with PAC too, is to say, let's make the language itself as small as possible, but let's, fi- let's provide a very rich library. Let's make sure that the library, and very rich, you know, it's, not, it's, it's not absurdly rich, but let's, let's provide you the types you need. Let's provide you all the library functions you need you know, with things like, you know, like, so we have a type for multi-sig key sets. You know, because we just don't want you to have to worry about that. You want to do multi sig? You can do it. In, you can do it in one. In fact, you can't. The only way you can do single sig on Pact is to write a key set that only has one key. So Pact, and that's was <laughs> also another thing that's crazy about Ethereum was the way they baked in single signature into the API. Um, you know, in the sense that like multi sig smart contracts in Ethereum have to run multiple transactions mm-hmm. if they want to leverage Ethereum's trustless signature mechanism if they want to build in and spend all the gas to do the verification themselves, that's something else. But Ethereum is hard-coded to a single signature per transaction if you use the external mechanism, whereas uh, PACT is a natively multi-sig container. the Mm. sense it's always good, it's not not just multi-sig, it's multi-curve. With PACT, you could actually have uh, nice. you know a, a sec p two fifty six signature, an e d two five five with nine signature and an e d four four eight signature all in the same transaction. and mm. you could do multi-sig computations with that.
0: That's really nice. I, 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 but there's a there's an aspect of this. I would actually argue that the reason why Ethereum has been so successful is because they made it so easy for people to build. Um, the reality of the situation, regardless of the design decisions they made, is that there's a large developer pool because people can get things done and deployed. and absolutely. Yeah, no and, solidity. Yeah. Having a
1: nice like, having an easy language, and insofar as solidity is easy, is what it's all about. I, I don't disagree with that.
0: And, I mean, the major, like, I think the the one of the major aspects of blockchains in general is the community aspect of kind of like, they they said it from the get go of Ethereum or or Bitcoin for that matter is that like synergism synergy. Whatever the word is that I'm missing here (laughs) is synergy. Synergy, yeah, is is the key part of this. And applications Mm -hmm. are further benefited by other people building applications, which requires people to actually participate in that pool. So the value of a token or the scarcity of that blockchain becomes larger because people are contributing to it. So on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Now you may be able to offer a lot of these things, but how do you get people to actually move from things they're already accustomed to and learn something new? To contribute to your blockchain ecosystem.
2: It well, comes I mean, on our podcast.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's why do you think comes so? <laughs> on a Sunday, no less. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's, that's you know, we've got our work cut out for us as far as that stuff goes. Um, and, you know, look, I mean, you know, of course, Ethereum is the first to market. So, of course, we're going to be, you know, I'm, you know, as a competitor, we're going to be shooting arrows at it all the time. But, you know, smart contract, the fact that we talk about smart contracts without having to explain for like you know, 10 minutes, yeah. what the hell we're talking about is entirely because of Ethereum.
0: Yeah, they're great
1: um, for that. and Bitcoin before it. Uh-huh. So, you know, like we were talking about computational models before. I mean, I think one of the this to me, one of the reasons why I just am so excited about this space in general is that if you if you have a background in distributed systems, you have faced all these problems before and mm-hmm. you've generally had really crappy solutions for
0: mm-hmm. all of them. I, so, I, instance, I grew up with Fortran and MPI. That was my my, my <laughs> PhD. So like I, I've I've faced some communication issues in my day. <laughs>
1: I'm just saying, you know, it's like you had, you know, all across the spectrum of this. Like if if you're in, say, so just hot loaded code itself, the idea that you want to have a user envi- a multi tenant user environment for safe code that has a pretty good idea of what you're going to do with it, in the sense of like, you know, the like Beam is similar or Erlang or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that. Um, and it's probably the most mature environment that most closely resembles this, although it's it's a necessarily kind of more complicated environment. Um, but you know, for whatever reason, we aren't all programming in Erlang, and I don't know Erlang and um, and you know elixir sounds great. Uh, but the the point being is that you know I've encountered these problems. I've written little DSLs for like trading for traders to write their own, uh, algos in a script that they could understand so that they could deploy things out into production. And you know, in a bank, it takes six it can take up to six months for code to reach production. You know, so like a user script that can be hot loaded into production uh, was tremendously valuable there, but you know, is is again fraught. There's a bunch of issues you have to deal with. Uh, just having something that's partition tolerant, you know, having a platform to run on, a public platform that is resilient to attack, where you don't have to worry about that. I mean, this is like Cloud 20 in a big way. You know, there's it's and then having money on it. I mean, the ability that you don't have to have the fact that you don't have to have a shopping cart, the fact that you can directly transact. I mean, these are all incredibly wonderful things to be able to do that we couldn't even talk about 10 years ago. Um, You know, so I, I just think it's all just I mean, this is like the coolest, coolest space to be in by a long shot for all things compute related. If you care about distributed computing, because, you know, we're. Ethereum, with all of its problems, is, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a, obviously of the opinion that it has a lot of problems, um, is still, you know, one of the most exciting things to happen in computation in general, insofar as anything has worked, you know, because let's not underestimate what it means when things work. Uh, you know, you have things like ICOs, you have things like CryptoKitties, you know, you have these, like, applications that are actually running in this environment and proving their utility, know and now we've got new challenges you know and the the biggest challenge is scalability i mean if ethereum could you know get to their next scaling target uh you know tomorrow uh you know a lot this would be kind of a different conversation because it would be one of the reasons why the kind of problems with ethereum safety loom so large is because Right next to it is the problem of scalability, which isn't Ethereum's fault per se. Ethereum is just a single-chain proof-of-work blockchain. Um, but we've got to solve that problem for smart contracts to take off, which is why you know, we always talk about ChainWeb at the same time we talk about Pact, because Pact might be better than, you know, let's say Pact is just clearly better than EVM and, and we're, we're just going to have a cakewalk, which we won't, for all the reasons you say. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say for some reason we did. I'm the most popular guy in the universe and everyone's going to do what I say. Without scalability, no business is going to put their stuff on a blockchain because that in the end, scalability is as dangerous as an exploit in the sense that, you know, you're going to put like your major business flow, say your business was CryptoKitties, say your business was an ICO. And, you know, of course, those are businesses or, you know, something at least. Um, And, you know, and because one of the other ones is more popular than you, like it's going to slow down your business and you're going to have all this congestion because your application is succeeding that's that's unacceptable yeah you know from a business point from a business risk point of view that is way too
2: much risk so, so we, have to, we have to let's solve talk all about these how things. you oh, sorry about that uh, no, let's talk about how you scale your uh, your network a bit then because um, it seems to me first of all I, I I did I did get the feeling while listening to uh, a particular talk that um, on Kadena that you can't really decrease the power of the network. You can't really like lower the number of, of nodes in it, which is fine, actually. I think in an ideal scenario, that it should never happen, to be frank with you. But how do you increase without... Do you use a hard fork mechanism? Hard fork. or it's okay, a hard fork. So you have to hard fork every single time you want to increase the number well, of nodes Well, remember, every single
1: time, the idea is that this isn't something you need to do all that often. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: So like our, our roadmap right now is, you know, is Testnet. I mean, Testnet's a little different because Testnet, we can obviously fork all day long. Um, but you know, so like testnet would be, you know, our, our first one. We're probably going to run. is going to be probably like ten or fifty, and then we'll hard fork to a hundred, and then you know, so for production, we might launch with a hundred. We might launch with five hundred. Um, we probably won't launch with a thousand, just because, you know, that's going to be a big party for no one to show up to if there's not a lot of utilization. You know, like we want we want to right size the chain for how much you uh, for how much uh, utilization it's going to have. Um, and then, you know, and then, but yes, the the, the network configuration itself is is uh, is a hard fork. And so the idea there is that, you know, once once we figure out what our scaling target, the point is we just have to have scaling targets, and we have to have that conversation. We're not going to, it's not just like, we we've got as much, you know, it's.
0: We're good just forever. At
1: it. Yeah, we're, we're good. Because remember, a question you asked before, is there an upper limit? There isn't.
0: Mm-hmm. The, you
1: know these these graphs these uh, expander graphs or whatever you want to call them degree diameter graphs they get to very they get to configurations that have a hundred thousand chains and them no
2: problem that and may be the, is the case is there a symmetry limit but like do you have to have a certain like you can only increase by x amount or some geometric you know how no to, no like, it,
1: degree diameter is an NP complete <laughs> yeah. it's like it's one so of every, these,
2: like, every one you added it, it,
1: they're yeah. unique each each you know it's not like you can't do a smooth function they mm-hmm. these are these are you know, unique graphs and they, there's, a, there's a table on Wikipedia if you look up uh, solutions to the degree diameter problem and it's got all of them that are known and they get quite big. The problem is, is that once you get up to like 100,000 chains and especially given that you know we, we suspect that the difficulty will be a function and will be inversely proportional to how many chains. I mean, it, we don't suspect that. We know that the difficulty is inversely proportional to how many chains you run. We don't know what that function is. But we know, we know that, like, two chains can have a lower difficulty than one. Um, so, I mean, which is one of the most amazing things about, if we, if we turn the conversation quickly to, you know, carbon footprint and things like that, one of the great things about ChainWeb is for your hash dollar, you're getting more throughput. You know, and one of the big problems we have with something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, and one of the reasons why people, I think, you know, like, uh, are so afraid, I mean, or uh, at least a point in the conversation of, like, why people don't like it when, kind of, you know, big miners are able to come in as it also kind of increases the arms race. It increases the uh, energy consumption, and the worst thing about it is that after some point, nobody really benefits anymore. I mean, you can make an argument: oh, big miners are great because now you have got more people running full nodes. But I think in Bitcoin, we're all good. You know, we don't need more nodes. Like no. we're, and the difficulty is absurd. So in Chainweb, you actually get this function where the more chains you run, and once you see that happening, you can hard fork and add more chains. But The last point I want to make is just simply that once you get up to like 100,000 chains and if they're full utilization, we're going to have to start talking about bandwidth. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the amount of data that's going to be going. A chain actually a a lightweight protocol in terms of that the header stream. It's just the header streams that have to go between chains. It's not the full transactions. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the raw transactions themselves. If we're doing like 200,000, a million transactions on a public chain, it's like, whoa, we got... (laughs) The data consumption there is going to be, you know, is going to be severe.
0: Uh-huh. I, I worry about, like, uh, let, me, let me get this straight. Is the total hash rate so trying to stay at a certain level, and then as you increase the number of chains in the entire, entire network, you then distribute them equally, always adding up to the total hash rate? So, like, as, as you increase, the amount of work that's necessary on a single chain decreases.
1: Yes, and okay. what we don't know is what that exact
0: function okay. is. We just find some equilibrium there.
1: Right. No, no. We, it, we, it's, it's actually, we tried to find a, the, the, the related chain web paper is a math paper, mm-hmm. and it's basically an attempt to find a closed form solution, which we, there isn't. So the, you know, w- one of the things we have to do before we get to testnet is uh, build, a, build a Monte Carlo simulation in which we're able to finally uh, simulate these things to start getting an idea of what that is.
0: Why
1: um, use money is Carlo? why we always say, uh, I'm sorry, I'm the wrong guy.
0: <laughs> okay, I'd like to have that conversation with the right guy. Yeah,
1: no, it's, it's please, please, you know, that is, we're, that is something where, uh, the, the, the people have proposed other things too, so, um, you know, it's a fair amount of work and, and it's stuff we're basically just starting on now, but that's why we say a thousand chains, 10,000 transactions per second,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: that's a lower bound. If we do, you know, because Bitcoin, you know, 10 transactions per second, we can do that. We can, and that won't be more efficient than Bitcoin. That will be, you know, a thousand chains doing ten thousand transactions mm-hmm. per second, um, you know, with the difficulty that, you know, kind of. I mean, there will be less miners, you know, because it's a new network. So it won't, but it won't. There won't. That doesn't represent a drastic. It's just chain web, chain web's raw parallelization that gets us up to ten thousand transactions per second. Um, but you know, so the point is, but the goal is definitely to be able to make some kind of statement that says you know, when we hard fork to a new network, that doesn't, you know, if the network is twice as big, that doesn't mean we're using double the power. Mm-hmm. Now, does it mean we're using the exact same amount of power? I don't know.
2: So it's funny, is that as, actually, is as you add more, um, let's just say, I, I guess, would we call the We guess individual chain nodes. I'm not sure how you would. change. Yeah, individual chains, okay. Sometimes we so the,
1: like the, the larger network of braid.
2: It's funny because you can actually leverage the network computing power itself to sort of optimize for the next iteration. It feels like like there's all this computing power going into what you're doing. It's almost like you can actually donate it to the network to solve these problems that are going to expand the network as it starts to reach capacity.
1: How uh, how, do, how does that work?
2: Well, you have you have all these all this computing power going into solve the contracts themselves. They can also yep. perhaps put in uh, with every solution, put in a uh, a unique proof that says, hey, this is this is what I found, and it's less than or greater than. Yeah, uh, less optimal or more optimal than the next the next uh, iteration up for number of nodes or end degree mm-hmm. or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. know. Just a just an offhand yeah. thought. Maybe I'm not understanding how that would kind of play out. I'm actually looking at the table while I'm talking. You have uh, orders of largest known graphs degrees.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, it's great. I love that table. But it's it seems really like you
2: kind of leverage the network to actually the, optimize the network.
1: Well, and and by the way, one of the biggest questions to be answered is not like the difficulty is probably one of the easier questions to answer. One of the more interesting questions to answer is do we optimize for more degrees or do we optimize for a smaller diameter? Because it might turn out that one benefits, you know, and then how does that rate, rate to throughput and difficulty? Like it might be that like more degrees is better. It might be that less degrees and a, long, and a slightly longer diameter is better. And that's going to be one of the most interesting things to find out.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to play with there. I think as you open up, like that's kind of a, the issue that I think you're running into is that we've we've made all this progress, but everything's focused on a small amount of knobs at the very, very base layer because we're working on right. one blockchain. As you increase right. those, the number of variables you can move in different directions, how you optimize for different sets of those variables, and what that means in terms of end use is a very large space. And yeah. And then you have to kind of figure out, like, what do we want this network to be? So you have ideological things you have to take into account, along with the computational problem of optimization. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, the, the thing I'm excited about is that it is more knobs, but it's not an infinite amount of knobs. It's basically like four or five. And yes, that's a lot more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, oh, yeah. But we know what they are, we, and we just need to figure out how we can talk about the interrelationship between those two and you know that's my that's the kind of problem i can get with is you know the 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 very, the the dimensionality of it is not huge it you know but the implications are important
2: so i actually have one more question before we kind of wrap up here um something that uh, you've mentioned several times is the turning completeness of pact incomplete um, yeah it's incomplete correct um and uh, what i've actually found use cases for that kind of turning complete operations specifically recursion Mm-hmm. in um in solidity but i get why you don't have it in packs for instance like if i want to do fuzzy matching i would i would store something with that could be compared by some sort of hamming distance okay yep. and um i would store it it a bk tree which would be easily true tra- best traversed through some some recursive algorithm do you yep. in- intend on including primitives which could actually be handle some of these more common you know I guess you'd call it recursive yeah. tools, but still like provide, you can actually, you've already got the formal verification inside the language. So you don't actually have to, nobody's going to be, be able to implement their own version of that.
1: Right. Well, you bring up an interesting point. I mean, one of the great things about an interpreted language, because, you know, if we want to talk about a language that's like PAC, the easiest one to think of is the various SQLs in uh-huh. store procedure language out there. That's the exact same model. You know, you've got, in, you've got interpreted cor- code. If you look at how store procedures are deployed to databases, we're talking about the same thing. The code gets deployed to the database. That code is inspectable. You know exactly what's running when you run it. And, where the, you know, and then you've got this rich uh, library, standard library that you can call from. Uh-huh. And you know, so that, that thing you just said, the introduction of new natives, I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about with something like SPV. You know, basically, all someone in the community has to do is say, look, I think this is going to be great and provide the code that implements it and then you know and then probably also you know get the FV uh, the formal verification people to talk about how that might interface with the formal verification environment because that's going to be important too um, and uh, and then you know you're basically you can add you can add great function you know great uh utility to the language without breaking anything that was there before and maybe even start talking about new ways to compute things um so uh and then the other thing that's important to note with PACT is that you do have iteration. So PACT has filter, map, fold, all the functional approaches. To what PACT doesn't have is four. You know, if you want to do four, you just make a list. You you know, you iterate over a list of the size of the loop you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you do map over that. Um, and so the point is, uh, it, it's not a, you know, it's that falls under the heading of recursion schemes, even though it's not recursion. Um, and uh, and the idea there is that you can do you know you can do uh, iterative things you can build up state iteratively in fact uh, you can do it enough to get yourself in trouble by the way just not infinite trouble you know mm-hmm. you can you can do some kind of combinatorial explosion that's going to use up all your gas easily in fact that's not hard to do um, it's just going to terminate it's definitely going to terminate it might use up, you know it might use up too much gas but it's definitely going to terminate. Um, so that's the first answer to that question is, are you sure you can't unroll your recursive? Because, you know, it's important to remember that most recursive uh, things are going to have some kind of break in them anyways, you know, like in the sense that there's going to be some point you're going to give up or you're going to, you know. So mm-hmm. if, you can, if you can essentially unroll your recursive uh, thing, you can do it in fact. And, uh, that, but the other thing I want to mention is that certain things... Uh, one of the, you know, PACT has this ability, you know, has it makes it really easy to do Oracle processes. And one of the, you know, with the these things called PACs, which are basically coroutines, um, you know, functions that stop and start, that remember where they are at. So when you come back in, they know. And it's a very nice computing model for uh sequence transactions. Makes things like Oracles really trivial, really easy to write. So um so one of the first most obvious use cases for that, and just in general for Oracle- based computation, is you know is, uh, is offloading some kind of like really expensive computation to the right kind of compute model for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but the thing to realize about that is that you know, any time you start talking about fuzzy anything, right, is you do have to take a step back and just remind yourself that you are working on a blockchain which is deterministic, right? So you might be able to convince yourself, you can certainly probably in most cases convince yourself that the same input. So for your fuzzy algorithm, you can probably convince yourself that for the same inputs, you'll always get the same outputs. But what you can't convince yourself is that for the same input, you'll have the sa- that, that you can reason about the amount of work you will be doing on different inputs. Right. So that, and the example I like to give is you know, you've decided you have a smart contract use case that's go- that is going to do mapping and it's going to find the shortest route from San Francisco. So, uh, you know, like I will say San Francisco to L.A., but that's dumb because that you just take the five. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like whatever. You know, like San Francisco to Albuquerque, where I'm from. Um, you know, the problem is is that that's all well and good, but you have no idea in advance how many compute cycles that's going to take, and when you consider that you're operating in a a cost constrained compute environment i'm really going to start wondering why you're doing this on a blockchain mm. when you could so easily yeah. do this I mean, look at CryptoKitties, right i mean that's you know they left a lot of the stuff off the blockchain and, and you might argue oh well that's just because it's hard to do these things in solidity but i would argue that you know honestly i don't in, in most of these applications there's a ton of utility for you really just want that seamless interaction with the off-chain compute you don't want to. You want right. to always be thinking about how you can use off-chain compute either before, you know, or you're, you're, like, you know, the classic example, like you know, something like option pricing, you know. What needs to be trustless?
0: Off-chain. Put that on the blockchain. Take everything yep. else off.
2: <laughs> well, I would, and, and for this case, like, I mean, <laughs> if you're storing fuzzy hashes onto the blockchain, that's really the trustless part I don't, you know everything I don't, else is your use of those ha- the, 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 the the hamming distance of it is something you could do like independent of that. So that makes but that's, sense. that's that's oh, the, that's cool
0: that's again. the kind of concept of the idea though is that, that we're just now getting to the point where we're starting to say well what really should we be putting on a blockchain what our blockchain is right. actually good for and then how do we right. optimize the stuff that does the other things really well elsewhere right.
1: But yeah, what we're finding
2: is there's a lot of stuff that should go on a blockchain that we that we're in order to well, create no, no, this no, like
1: no. truth. I would argue that there's a lot a lot of stuff we want to represent on a blockchain. Yes, sure. I'm not sure we want to compute everything on a
0: blockchain. It's the same situation of like we don't really store things from a di- distributed storage perspective on the blockchain. We just store its reference, like for IPFS. Right.
1: IPFS, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A time stamping in general.
0: Yeah. All right. I think that's a that's a, f- a fantastic way to kind of wrap this up, and I want to. Thank you for, for coming on and just having a, a great conversation about what you're yeah. doing, as well as the overall types of things people should be thinking about when trying to build stuff on top of blockchains or building blockchains themselves.
2: Yeah, it was really great. How can, um, how can people find Kadena? How could they contribute to the project? Um, are you hiring? And what, uh, how can they find you? Yes. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, yes, people can definitely contribute to the project. Uh, ChainWeb is, uh, is just kicking, is we've been working on it for a little while now, and that's open source. I think the repo is up, I'm not sure yet. If, if not, it will be up shortly. PACT is a fully open source project. It's been open source since November of 2016. Um, there's tons of work going on there. This formal verification thing is very exciting. We absolutely welcome people to both. Well, we encourage people to check out PACT because it's very easy to use. We have a web editor. So you can try out smart contracts right in your browser, um, but it's got a great tooling environment. It's very quick to get up and running with PACT and uh, start coding smart contracts. So you can even test them uh, right there with the PACT tool, uh, and, but also contribute to the language. Um, we're at cadena.io, that's our website. Um, you can find all our papers on there. Um, you can also join our Telegram chat there. You can join our newsletter there. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know, I'm reachable well through there. I definitely, you know, I want to, I'm very interested in all the discussions that are happening around this, as we all are at Kadana, and uh, we're just really, really looking forward to Testnet and getting these things into the hands of the users. Awesome. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you. It was very fun.